So this is a new sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew. And um, so what I'm going to do this morning, I need to kind of introduce this series to you. I need to introduce the Gospel of Matthew to you. Um, and then actually look at this, this text that we just, uh, uh, that our worship team just read for us. So I'm going to kind of teach for a minute here and then move in and, and maybe preach a little bit. So uh, I, need you to, I need you to have a sense of the gospel of Matthew, the big picture, and then we're going we're gonna to narrow it down into our, into our passage for this morning, okay? Does that make sense? So if you have your Bible, just, just have it out to Matthew. Open it up to Matthew chapter 1. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, anybody know what the word gospel means? Y'all so smart. It does. It means good news. Gospel means good news. Gospel, uh, if, you, if, you, if you study a little bit, you'll find uh, the word gospel is used um, in ancient history, Greek, uh, during, during the time where uh, the, the, the Greeks and the Romans were in power. And sometimes it was used to uh, reference political news. Uh, some, some happening, some political event uh, would be called uh, uh, the gospel when there was this news coming. But really, it's a pretty uh, Christian word, gospel. Most of the, the ancient sources for the word gospel are found either in the Bible or in early Christian history. So the word is a, is a, is a pretty Christian word that means good news. And I hope by the end of our series in Matthew, we'll have a, a better understanding of what, what good news is and what good news was to the author of Matthew. Um, the Gospels are basically biographies. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, they're more or less biographies on the life of, of Jesus. And so as we study Matthew, we kind of keep that in mind. We're familiar with biographies. We, some of us have read biographies. That's the kind of literary genre that Matthew would fall into, would be a biography. Each of these biographies center on the life of Jesus. And they each kind of come at Jesus a little differently from a different angle, which again, I think probably makes sense to most of us. We can read multiple biographies about the same person and expect to learn a little bit different information from those different biographies, right? Even though it's the same person. So uh, Mark, the second gospel, he starts his, his biography this way, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Very straightforward. He said, this is, here it is. I'm going to tell you about the life of Jesus, and we're going to get into it. Luke uh, has a different approach. Luke is the only non-Jew writing a gospel. He's Greek. He was trained as a doctor. He has kind of a scientific mind. So he comes at the life of Jesus from sort of a scientific perspective. He didn't actually know Jesus personally, so he had to do a lot of interviews, a lot of first-person interviews. So listen to how he starts his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, talking about Jesus. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account, a biography, a gospel, for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's the person he's writing to. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's how he starts his gospel. John, John is a little bit more poetic in his beginning. This is how he puts it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All four of these gospels, right from the get-go, let us, the reader, know this is, this is a story about Jesus. This is a historical biography about the life of Jesus. And they each do it in their own unique way. You will not find the names of the authors of these Gospels uh, attached to their book. We don't find the life of Jesus by Matthew. The life of Jesus written by John. And that's a little strange to us because we're used to reading books, I think most of us, kind of by ourselves, right? You pick up a book, you sit down, you read it. You want to know who wrote it, right? What's the, what's the first thing you do when you pick up a new book? I usually look at the back, right? Who's the author? I want their face. I want to know why should I be reading what you're writing, right? Very different in this day because most folks weren't literate. 
There were only a few people who could read and who could write. And so books were written not to individuals, but to communities. Books were written not to be sat down and read by yourself, but to be read out loud to a group of people. You hear me? So Matthew doesn't put his name on the book because Matthew, as he's writing his gospel, most likely he's imagining that he's going to be the one to read this to the community he's a part of, to the church that he's a part of. So he doesn't need to say this is who wrote it because he's standing up on Sunday reading what he wrote. You get it? So we know the authors of these books not because their names are attached to them, but from early Christian history, early church history where we have other historical documents that reference the authors of these books with, I think, a, a good level of validity. We could say, yeah, this was, this was Matthew who wrote this. The, the early church agreed that it was Matthew who wrote this gospel. They were written, all four of these gospels were written pretty soon after the, the life and the death of Jesus. They were written, as, as Luke points out, when eyewitnesses could verify that these things actually happened, right? Luke is saying, I, I went and, and, and talked to people who were with Jesus. I, I talked to people who saw him crucified, who saw him after he was resurrected. So, so, so these four gospel accounts, they were written not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, but within memory, early memory of the life of Jesus. Again, you, you with me? Okay. So we come at these books, we come at Matthew, uh, I think, with a level of trust that what Matthew says here uh, happened. And we need to pay attention to that. We need to ask, what was Matthew trying to communicate to that early church? Who was Matthew? Matthew was one of the, the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Matthew was chosen by Jesus to be kind of in Jesus' inner circle, as it were, Right? So, so Matthew knew a whole lot about Jesus. For Jesus' three years of ministry, when he traveled around teaching, healing, proclaiming the kingdom of God, Matthew was front and center. He saw it all happen. He saw it all go down, right? So Matthew was an eyewitness, unlike Luke, who had to do interviews. Matthew was there. Anybody remember what Matthew's profession was? Tax collector. We're going to get at this in a minute. But Matthew was not the most loved guy on the block. Matthew would have been seen as a traitor in his day. Matthew was Jewish. Uh, the Jews were at this point occupied by who? Rome. Rome was the occupying power. And, and Matthew had basically sided with the Romans to line his own pockets. He knew he could make a lot of money by collecting taxes for the Romans. So he collected enough taxes to make the Romans happy, but then also to, you know, to take care of himself too. We don't have anybody like that today, right? We don't know anything about that. That just happened back then. But Matthew was probably pretty wealthy but pretty despised. In fact, publicly, he would have been known as a sinner. That just Everybody knew he was a sinner. We have a category for people like Matthew, and it's sinner. So Matthew knew that. He knew what his countrymen, he knew what his people thought of him. If Matthew was going to throw a party, he was going to only invite people who fell under that sinner category. No one else is going to show up. So when Matthew throws parties, it's other sinners who come, other outcasts, outsiders, foreigners, who show up to Matthew's parties. One author says that Matthew makes a very unlikely author for the life of Jesus, given his background, given his history. I'm not sure how true that is, and again, we'll see that in just a minute. But here's the thing about Matthew. When he encountered Jesus, his life changed. When Matthew encountered Jesus, his life was completely transformed. We're going to see this in a few weeks when we get to the, to the story where Jesus comes to Matthew. But just a quick preview. Matthew, excuse me, Jesus seeks out Matthew. Jesus looks for Matthew, finds him, and says, Matthew, come follow me. And I think everybody around Matthew would agree this person is a different person than he used to be. His life was complete. No longer is his life revolved around making money, gouging his countrymen. His life had been completely transformed so that he was willing to leave it all to follow Jesus. Complete transformation. And I think this affects how Matthew tells the Jesus story because his life had been radically transformed by Jesus. He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was now. 
His life had been completely transformed. And so that's, that's the lens that we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew for the next however long. It's going to be a while, y'all. Just get comfortable with Matthew. I think this is the lens that we need to come at Matthew with, with is, uh, are our lives being transformed by Jesus? There's this interesting, I think, idea in Christianity today, which is, I can believe in Jesus, but keep living how I lived before. I can believe the right things about Jesus, but keep doing the things I was doing before. I can believe the right theology, but still be kind of in bondage in the things that held me up before. And what we're going to encounter in Matthew Church, what we're going to encounter in Matthew, is that this is just not a Christian idea. That when we encounter Jesus, our lives have to be changed. We have to look different. We have to act different, sound different, think different, love differently. Let me get real practical. Are you a more loving person this, this year than you were last year? Do you know more peace in your life, no matter what the circumstances are, this year than last year? Are you more radically generous with your resources, with your time this year than you were last year? And these are the hard questions that that Matthew forces us to ask of ourselves. Because we're going to see story after story after story in this gospel of complete transformation. I was dead. I'm alive. I was sick. I was healed. I was an outcast. I've been welcomed in. So this will be the question, church, for us, and I want to put it in front of you right now to get used to this question. Have we been completely transformed? Because our point of starting a church in Bronzeville isn't to just get a lot of people to come in the door, is it? Not interested in that. Our point of starting a church isn't to get a lot of people in small group, community groups throughout the week studying the Bible. That's good. That's not our point. It's not to have a lot of people showing up to pray uh, in the morning at 11 o'clock before the service. That's good, but that's... Our point is not to to see lots of people do service projects in Bronzeville, as wonderful as that would be. Why have we started a church in Bronzeville? To see lives changed. To see lives radically, ours, ours included, right? That's why we do what we do. That's why we're here, is to see lives radically transformed by encounters with Jesus Christ. So if that's not happening... If that's not happening for me, if that's not happening for you, then what do we have to offer those who we want to see come join us? Good worship, that's great. Preaching, that's nice. The only thing we ultimately have to offer is encounters with Jesus that transform lives. Would you agree with that? So we have to keep coming back to this and coming back to this and coming, which is why we're going to spend a lot of time on Matthew. Okay. There's the, that's all you get about Matthew. Okay, now we're just going to get into it. So if you need more about, like, the big picture, you better join a community group. Today. <laughs> Today. Join a community group and, 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 and dig into Matthew more with these, with these Bible studies that meet throughout the week. Um, genealogies. Genealogies. Um, Probably the, the most boring portion of Scripture, it seems to me, if we're just going to be honest about it. I, my wife's like, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And she's like, oh, oh. And I notice she's not here right now. So. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's a good reason for that. Probably has to do with our son making a, making a fuss right now. Um, genealogies. Why does Matthew start with a Genealogy. Um, None of the other gospel writers do. Luke does include a genealogy, but it's a little ways into his account. Matthew, right off the bat, goes to the genealogy. Why? Incredibly important in the Jewish culture that you knew where you came from. In that time, if you didn't know where you came from, if you didn't know your family tree, you didn't know your heritage. And real practically, you didn't know your inheritance. You didn't know what was coming to you. Because you were attached to the land. This was the land that was in your family for generation after generation after generation. If you didn't know where you came from, you didn't know who you were in very practical, practical ways. So when Jesus, or excuse me, when Matthew starts off with a genealogy, we kind of glaze over. But not, not, not that first church. No. They're curious. Who are you talking about? Where'd they come from? 
Did our family trees overlap at all? What's the story here? Genealogy is incredibly, incredibly important, which I think is why Matthew begins with this. Uh, It's a little different, I think, for, for those of us who are Americans to connect with this idea of genealogy, right? Um, so I'm, you know, I'm a white person and, uh, why, what's that, what's that funny? I'm a white person. And, uh, here's one of the things that's, 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 uh, interesting about being white in America. White is not, uh, is not a place. There's no, you know, country, there's no culture, there's no hair, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so, and so, uh, white, being white in America, like, like historically, it meant, uh, giving up something in order to be in a position of power. Are you, are you with me? Right? So, so maybe in my background, and I know this, there's some, there's some Swedish, okay? I don't know what that means. And there have been to Sweden. I don't really know what Swedish people do. I don't know what makes Swedish people different from other people, right? Because why? Because being white in America means meant giving up any kind of cultural distinctive tied to a particular place or people in order to just be white. Why? Because to be white in America is to be in a position of what? Power, authority, right? Is it okay that we're talking about this in church? Some of you nervous? <laughs> like, what? No. <laughs> So we just got this, we're a multi-ethnic church, right? So we just got to talk about these things. Um, so I think genealogy for at least, you know, white people in America, it's, it's challenging because there's, for, for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, there's this real lack of connection to any history, story, place, distinction of, of where I came from. I, I don't think that's just true for white people. I think it's true for people of color as well, but for radically different reasons, Right? Because what white people kind of gave up to be in positions of power, people of color had taken from, right? And so now people are taken against their will to be somewhere they didn't want to be. And connection with story and history and place has been stolen. Would you agree? Would you agree? So to be, uh, to be American and to talk about genealogy and history and family tree, it gets a little complicated, Right? But I think, I think that, that, that we each still have this desire to know, where did, where did I come from? Who are my people? What were the cultures, generations and generations and generations back, that mattered, that formed my family, my great-grandparents, my great-great-great-great-grandparents, right? There's still that desire. Has any, have any of you seen this documentary that's out? Uh, and Tyler, we're going to play this here in just a second, called Faces of America. It's on PBS. Tony. Tony, you and I like the only ones brave enough to admit we watch PBS. <laughs> uh, Faces of America um, is, been, is produced and, and kind of narrated and directed uh, by Dr. Henry Louis Gates at Harvard. And what he's done, and he's done this in other places, but what he's done in this series is he's collected a group of rather famous people and, um, and, and, and told them their genealogy, told them where they came from, Right? And, uh, well, okay, I'm not going to say anything else about it. I want you to just show the trailer real quick, and then let me make a couple comments about it. In his latest series on ancestry, Henry Louis Gates Jr. asks the question, where do you come from? Mexico. Russia. China. England. Jamaica. Ireland. Turtle Mountain. Italy. Bermuda. Japan. Guests learn about the arrival of their families in America. Lorenzo Longoria, unmarried, goes to New Spain for the appointment of Magistrate of Mexico on the 16th of June, 1603. 17 years before the Mayflower. You could write a family history. This is a movie. (laughs) These people are crazy. Five years after you got here, your great-grandfather became a naturalized citizen of the United States. That's great. (laughs) whereupon the said Michael Guerin Jr. took and subscribed the following oath. I, Michael Guerin Jr., do solemnly swear I will support the Constitution of the United States. Within five years. That's, That's one of the greatest documents I've ever seen. That is fantastic. And just days after the Declaration of Independence in 1776, John became a delegate to the Pennsylvania Constitutional Convention. Wow. This is the Constitution of Philadelphia. This is... Oh, my God! That's absolutely amazing. That's John's signature. Wow. 
Wow. He's one of the founding fathers. Yeah. The search for roots moves beyond America. Ma Lin Guan was born in the Ming Dynasty in the year 1435. There you are. There he is. It's amazing. <laughs> I feel I'm in a Dickens novel. <laughs> Here are the papers. <laughs> Your family lived in one place for 400 years. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Imagine how great it must have been. Yeah. Baldassaro Melino was born in the year 1625. Wild. That's impressive. And guess where they lived? They lived in Toronto Pelina. And that's my question. After so long there, why leave? Why leave? Exactly. There are surprising connections. Elizabeth, could you read the name of the top? John Lackland, King of England? King John I, Elizabeth, is your 24th <laughs> great-grandfather. The King of England? That is your blood ancestor. Wow. Together, these stories explain who they are as individuals. I always think that the more ways you can define yourself, the better off you are. I find it fascinating to know where people are from, why they speak their language, what was their history. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's important to know where you've been to know where you're going. And who we are as a country. And so you look back at your ancestors and you see their part in American history, or at least see how their, their small part in American history changes what it means to be an American. Faces of America, coming in 2010, only on PBS. See, PBS is okay, y'all. Watch it. Um, but you know what I love is the... Uh, uh, I'll accept that applause on behalf of Dr. Gates. Uh, thank you. Um, what I think it's fascinating about even just that little clip, and, and, and if you've seen these, you, you, see, you see these moments. It's the moment that um, where they see their history in front of them for the first time. And, and he kind of has to walk them through it a little bit, right? And, but but can you, you can see their, their mind sort of working and taking in this new information Elizabeth Alexander, she was, the, she was the, the poet at President Obama's inauguration. You remember that? You, could you see her mind? She's like, the king of England? You know, like, <laughs> like, is that good? Is that not good? You know, what? Uh, so, but, but, but that moment of saying, oh, I can, that's, this, that's where I came from. And, and, and going, well, that's pretty amazing. And that's pretty ugly. That part of my history, whoa, that's beautiful. That part of my history, that's... Maybe I'd rather not even know about that, right? And, and I think even, even as Americans, as people who kind of have a hard time placing ourselves, we, we, we want to know where we come from because it gives us a sense of, of who, we, who we are. And this is what I think is brilliant about the way that Matthew begins his gospel because he places Jesus in a story with the family history, right? So let's say a couple things about this genealogy. First, I want to talk about the, the way that Matthew orders the genealogy. Then I want to talk about the dysfunction in the genealogy. And I want to talk about what, what holds this whole thing together. First, um, and, and we saw this as the worship team uh, read this, this is a, a well-organized genealogy. Matthew says there are, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. Very well organized. The problem is uh, it's not really accurate. There, there weren't just 14 generations perfectly lined up this way. So is Matthew lying? Well, remember, who was Matthew's audience? Jewish people who knew the Hebrew scriptures really well, right? So if he was just lying, they would have called him out, Right? So we know that probably wasn't what's going on. He's trying instead to communicate something. He's using a literary device, a literary device to communicate something about Jesus. The question is, what? Why does Matthew want to show this order, this perfect order in the timeline, in the, in the family tree of Jesus? What's he after? The, 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 um, 
The family tree begins by Matthew saying, um, a record of. He says, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus. The Greek word here for record is a translation of the Hebrew word for Genesis. What's Matthew doing here? Not only is there perfect order in the genealogy, Matthew, I think, is saying this is a new Genesis. There's a, there's a new beginning. And now, again, you and I, we might have trouble sort of picking up that, but remember, who's, who's he writing to? Jewish people. They hear this language, Genesis. Ooh, I know Genesis. I know what happened in Genesis. A new beginning. I think Matthew's saying, look, there's a new, there's a new something happening, a new beginning in Jesus in this perfectly ordered family tree. Matthew is writing to a Jewish people who have been wondering for hundreds of years, when is God going to save us? When is God going to rescue us? They are currently occupied by the Romans. Before that, it was the Greeks. Before that, it was someone else. These are a people who have known exile, who have known what it is to be an oppressed people in their own land or to be taken from their own land. These are people who have been taxed into poverty. This is who Matthew is writing his gospel to. So what 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 does Matthew want them to see in the way he orders this genealogy, in this new beginning, this order? What does Matthew want them to see? I think Matthew, I think Matthew is looking back over their history and he's saying, let me, let me reinterpret this for you. Let me reclaim this history for you. You know this history. You know the suffering. You know the pain of this history. You know the years of exile and conquest. Let me reclaim this history for you. I think by ordering the genealogy this way, Matthew is showing God was never absent. There was not one minute when God's sovereignty was not over your situation, over our people's situation. I think Matthew was wanting them to see that every time that we as a people felt abandoned, God was advancing his perfect plan. Every time when life looked bleak, For us as a people, God's perfect plan was still advancing. A new beginning has come, Matthew says. Look at how this has been ordered. No matter what our experience was, God's perfect plan was still advancing. What would Matthew say to us today? When we can't even figure out what this next week is supposed to look like, God is still advancing his perfect plan. When another one of your relationships flakes out, disintegrates, God is still advancing his perfect plan. When politicians ignore the poor to advance their own corrupt purposes, God is still advancing his perfect plan. When you know that God has called you to your job, But you have no support, inept administrators and supervisors. God is still advancing his perfect plan. When your brother or your sister's life is falling apart and they refuse to hear the words of life that you want to share with them, God is still advancing his perfect plan. When violence or disease steals away a loved one, despite, despite your prayers, God is still advancing his perfect plan. Matthew is speaking to a people who have known oppression, who have known pain, who have known suffering for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Matthew comes to him and says, let me retell your story. Let me show you a new beginning in Jesus and how God, for not even a moment, abandoned you. How his plan was advancing to this very moment, to this new beginning in Jesus. This isn't some sappy spirituality that Matthew is offering to make somebody's pain go away. This isn't a a Hallmark greeting card kind of Christianity to make them smile in the midst of their pain. By structuring Jesus' genealogy with such perfect order, Matthew is retelling and reclaiming their history for God's purposes in their lives. Out of the chaos, out of the sin, out of the injustice of our past, 
God has been advancing his perfect plan in our lives, in the lives of our city. The last word will not, this is what Matthew's saying, the last word will not be had by the wicked. The last word will not be held by the wicked because what does Matthew say? In Jesus, a new genesis has arrived. A new beginning has come. And so we look back over our history and we say, God was present, is present, will be present. Church, this has to be our mission. We have to proclaim and demonstrate to our city that in Jesus, a new genesis has come. Because too many people look back over their pasts and see only brokenness, only ruin, only decay. Church, we have to proclaim a new beginning in Jesus that says God never was absent. God has cared, has been present, has been advancing his purposes in your life all along. Again, this does not mean, this does not mean, I've said this before, I'll say it again, that we ignore evil or sin in our lives or in the life of our city. We don't look past that. It doesn't mean that we pretend that nothing bad ever happens to Christians. It does mean that we acknowledge the pain and suffering in our lives. Listen, we acknowledge the pain and the suffering in our lives and in our city, and then we shout at the top of our lungs, you will not have the last word. It does mean that we admit to our own brokenness, to our own sinfulness, because God's plan has been advancing in our lives in spite of our brokenness and our sinfulness. It does mean that whatever shame or guilt you brought in with you this morning, because what you have done or what has been done to you, there is a new beginning for you now in Jesus today. Even when your life, when my life looked hopeless, God's perfect plan was still advancing in your life and in our world. Do you believe that? Church, we have to, we have to show the world what that looks like. I want you to see how this works in Jesus' genealogy. Because Matthew doesn't just do a nice literary trick and say, let me organize this real nicely so you think God's in control. No, no, no. Matthew peels back another layer. He says, let me show you a little bit of, let me show you a little bit of dysfunction. Anybody know dysfunction? <laughs> Anybody know dysfunction? Have you ever had this experience where you have a friend, and you're pretty close with them, but, but your, your experience of them is just like they're this perfect person, that they come from this perfect family, and nothing bad ever happens to them. They just seem to have all their stuff together. It's pretty hard to really feel close to that person, right? And then maybe one day you find out, oh, 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 you have that in your family? Oh, that happened to you? Oh, you carried that with And what happens in that moment? Isn't there a sense of closeness? You can relate? This is what Matthew does. Matthew says, look, Jesus didn't drop out of the sky one day on this little cloud, everything perfectly neat and tidy. No, no, Jesus had a family. It was messed up. You're going to feel good about your family by the end of this sermon, I guarantee it. <laughs> You're going to love your family. You're going to call that dysfunctional auntie. You're like, I love you. Because Matthew's going to tell us some stuff here. Uh, sometimes pastors are looked at this, at, 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 at this way, you know, as if we sort of have everything together and our, you know, our families are, you know, great and no pain, no issues, and, 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 and I want to tell you, I, man, I, I come from a family, I come from an extended family of divorce, pregnancy outside of marriage, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, domestic violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse. And, and my guess is in moments of honesty, all of us could go, yep, 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 yep. That's part of my story. That's where I come from. So watch, watch how Matthew does this. Watch how Matthew does this. He includes details that are, are a little surprising. For example, there's, there's five women included in this genealogy. Five of them, including uh, uh, Mary, Jesus' mother. Now, this was a little strange. Why? Because in that day, the family tree was passed through who? 
men, right? So why include a woman in this story? I'm just saying, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just, that's how it was. Uh, five women. Why? Why? What does Matthew want to do? Tamar, first one. She was a Canaanite, not a Jew, a foreigner. You know? Not a perfect bloodline. She disguised herself. Uh, this is a crazy story. This, <laughs> she disguised herself as a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law. Are you, are you with me? Because uh, her father-in-law had neglected her. And I'm, without going into all the details, he, he, he had taken advantage of her. So Tamar dressed up like a prostitute so she can sleep with her father-in-law. Uh, Rahab, Canaanite, another foreigner, a prostitute. That's, that's how she made her living. She helped two spies spy out the land of Jericho. Remember that story in the Old Testament? So you got Tamar, Rahab, both uh, uh, non-Jewish uh, women. Ruth, also foreigner. She was a Moabite. Uh, Ruth, uh, there's a, a pretty poignant scene of Ruth uh, um, picking uh, the leftover grain from the field as an immigrant in, in a country that wasn't her own, trying to find enough food to eat. Bathsheba. Bathsheba is sexually exploited by King David, taken advantage of. She gets pregnant by the king. So what does David do? Has her husband killed in the front lines of battle. Bathsheba. And then next week when we're going to get to Jesus' birth, we're going to meet Mary, teenage single mother. What is Matthew showing us? What is Matthew telling us? This is, this is Jesus' story. This is his history. These are his people. This is where he came from. There's a whole lot more to be said about Jesus as well, but I think Matthew wants us to know this is where the Messiah came from. This was his heritage, his history, his people. There's a lot of other people in here. There's some good kings. There's some really messed up, whacked kings in this story who were just really bad people. Jesus had a dysfunctional family. So how do you respond to that? How, how do you hear this? Jesus had a dysfunction. How do you? I think some of us maybe are borderline offended by that. Because we want our Jesus unsullied by the world. Not bound by, not influenced by, not a part of the things that have influenced us. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that if you're even remotely offended by this idea that Jesus comes from a dysfunctional family, that it has something to do with the way you understand Christianity. Because some of us have this idea that Christianity is about keeping our stuff together. By presenting a good face to the world. By, by, by even, if, even if everything is going wrong in our lives, someone says, how are you doing? God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Like, uh. <laughs> If we, if we are even remotely offended by Jesus' dysfunctional family, probably says something about us, about the way that we feel like we need to present ourselves to one another. No, if I told you that, if you knew where I came from, if you knew what was done to me, if you knew what I, no. I, so what do we do? We have this kind of fake religious veneer we put up with people, right? So we're able to keep each other just far enough apart to be, feel safe. Devastating to a church, and especially a multi-ethnic church like ours. Because we already walk in with all kinds of baggage, right? We already walk in with all kinds of presuppositions, biases, expectations of people who don't look like us or come from the same place as us, right? Devastating. Devastating to a church like ours. There can be no place, no room for that kind of fake religiosity. Part of our mission as a church is to exhibit and to experience authentic community. We can't do that if we don't know you, if we don't know your story, if we don't know where you came from. Even if it's hard, even if it's ugly, even if, even if Derek has to say, well, you said offended me. Lots of apologizing, folks. Lots of forgiveness. 
Lots of reconciliation. But that's where authentic community will be found for us. Amen? It's hard. It's hard. But it's good. It's good. So we've looked at the order of Jesus' genealogy. We've seen how We've seen how Matthew structures this so that we can say God is reclaiming and redeeming our histories. God was never absent. God is advancing his plan in our lives. We've seen, we've seen Matthew not hide anything of where Jesus came from, showing that, showing that Jesus is reclaiming and redeeming and restoring that too. And what is it that holds all of this together? Three times we see the word Christ in this genealogy. Three times. We have that slide. The very beginning, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The next verse. And 14, talking about the genealogy or the generations, from the exile to Christ. Let's talk about the word Christ for a second. Christ was not Jesus' last name, right? We don't know Jesus' last name if he had a last name, right? Uh, It wasn't Christ, though. Christ was a title. Jesus was a very common name. Jesus was a very, very common name. Come from the, uh, the Hebrew word um, uh, Yeshua, which meant God saves. Yeshua was a shortened version of the, of the Hebrew word Yehoshua, translated Joshua, which meant God is salvation. So powerful names, right? God saves, God is salvation. But there was, like, there was a lot of Jesuses and Joshuas running around, right? So if Matthew said Jesus, people would be like, which one? <laughs> which Jesus? There's a lot of them. Jesus Christ. What's Christ? Christ is the Greek word Christus, which is a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Anybody? Anybody? Anointed one. Okay? Track with me. Hold with me here for a second. Messiah is used over and over again in the Old Testament to refer to prophets, priests, and kings. Okay? But predominantly to King David and to King David's eventual ancestor. The the great hope of the Jewish people is that one day in the line of David would come a what? A Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, to save his people. So when Matthew says, this is a genealogy, a record, this is the new Genesis, this is the beginning of Jesus, people are like, okay. Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, now this is a whole different story. Okay, now this is a whole different deal that Matthew's talking about here. Because everybody in the room goes, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what we've been waiting for. That's the one we've been praying for, the one we've been longing for, the one who is going to rescue us, the Messiah. And Jesus, or Matthew uses this term three times. When you see words repeated in the scripture, it's important. He bookends the genealogy, Christ, 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 the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. What is it that holds this order and this dysfunction together? The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. How does this work? How does this work? Imagine hearing, imagine hearing Matthew's gospel for the very first time. What are you thinking when Matthew uses the word Messiah? Because the Messiah has come. Because the anointed one has come. Matthew can look back and show how God's perfect plan has been advancing up until this perfect moment. Why? Because the Messiah has come. Because the Messiah has come, Matthew, the tax-collecting sinner, can say, let me tell you about Jesus' family, because I can relate to that. Some of us might be offended by Jesus' genealogy. I think Matthew, he reveled in it. Because for Matthew, the gospel was really good news. Because he knew his label, sinner, outcast. Jesus came from there. Oh, that is great news. The Messiah holds this genealogy together. The Messiah's coming demonstrates to the world that no matter what the present circumstances appear to be, God's perfect plan will not be stopped. And at the same time, Jesus' arrival means that God's salvation has already come. For everybody. Because who's in the genealogy? 
Everybody. Sinners, outcasts, foreigners, everybody. How was a surprise? Oh, we thought it was just going to be for this group of people. No, 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 no. Don't you know where the Messiah comes from? Don't you know who his great, 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 great grandparents were? Don't you know where they came from, what they did for a living, what they had done to them, the stupid mistakes that they made? No, no, salvation, salvation, God saves. God is salvation, has arrived for everyone. Are we, are we living that way, church? Are we demonstrating this reality to our city that God's salvation, that the anointed one has come and, and brought salvation for everyone? Or does our city look at us and say, I think it's for that kind of person. I think you have to have that level of education. I think you need to live there. I think you need to come from that kind of place. Or does the city look at us and say, salvation's come for everyone, and I'm welcome at the table? Tax collectors, prostitutes, murderers, immigrants, religious people, everybody. I think what Matthew wants us to see right here at the beginning of his gospel, before he even shows us very much about Jesus, he wants to right here at the beginning of his gospel show that no one is beyond the reach of the anointed one of God. Are you an addict this morning? God's salvation has come for you. Have you been abused? God's salvation has come for you. Do you carry the shame of your family's history with you? God's salvation has come for you. Have you been told too many times that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up, that your dreams and your passions are misguided? God's salvation has come for you. Are you afraid of the future? Unsure of what next year, next month, next week is going to bring? Say it with me. God's salvation has come for you. Are you weighed down by the heavy burden of your own racism, sexism, ethnocentrism? Say it with me. God's salvation has come for you. Does the violence in your neighborhood, in our city, leave you feeling helpless and hopeless? God's salvation has come for you. Have you been told that you're not smart enough to graduate from high school? That you don't have what it takes to go to college? God's salvation. Right at the beginning, right at the beginning, Matthew says, let me show you, let me show you, God has always been in control. God's sovereignty has always been known. And, 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 and despite the fact of all of this that has happened, despite where you come from, despite who your uncle is, despite what happened three generations ago, despite what you did yesterday, God's salvation has come for you now. And so it's not just, listen, listen, this is the good news. It's not just that Jesus had a dysfunctional family. Jesus has a dysfunctional family. Is that good news? Is that good news to you? Because we're not here otherwise. We're not in this room otherwise. We're not participating in mission otherwise. We're not sharing meals and prayer in one another's home otherwise. If Jesus doesn't have a dysfunctional family today, we're out of here. Worship team, come on up. Come on up. Let's pray together. I'm aware of, uh, I'm aware that, that there's folks in our church um, who are, who are feeling at their, at their, at their last their last bit of energy to keep pushing forward. I'm aware that there are those of you who make up this community, who make up this church, who are really unsure of how you're going to make it tomorrow. I'm aware that some of you are, are struggling hard with your career, with your vocation, with your calling, with your mission.
I'm, a, I'm aware, having talked with some of you, that some of you, the, 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 the heaviness, the weight of your family, of where you came from, the weight of, of what you're carrying even right now feels almost unbearable. And so this morning, we want, we want to pray for you, church. So I wanna, I'm just going to ask, just in the next minute or two, if, 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 you, if you this morning, if you're at a place of, of just desperation, of needing God to be God in your life, if you're at, if you're at a place where, where the salvation of God feels out of reach, if you're at a place where you're having a hard time seeing how God has reclaimed and redeemed your history, we, we want to pray for you this morning. We want to pray for you. So if you're in that place, if you want to be prayed for, I'm going to ask you just to stand where you are. Just stand where you are. And just, in just a minute, we're going, to, we're going to pray for you. If this morning, if you need prayer, if you need our church to come around you, to place our hands on you, and to pray that God's perfect will will be known in your life, just stand up right where you are so we can pray for you. So that we can commission you for the work that God has called you to, for the life that God has called you to. If you need to be reminded this morning of your identity in Christ as a new child of God who has been redeemed, who is a new creation in Christ, stand up right where you are. Stand up right where you are. And we're going to pray for you here in just a minute. Church, just open your eyes. Come around these people who are standing now. Place your hands on their shoulders. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Let's pray for these. Lord, we, we are a people. We are a people who, who need you every day to, to give us enough for the day. We are a people who need you every day to remind us of our identity in you. That we are your children, your daughters and your sons, saved by the blood of Jesus for mission, for purpose in this life. So I pray for my sister and for my brother this morning that your Holy Spirit of God would speak words of truth into their hearts, into their minds. That they would be reminded of whose they are. That there is no claim on their life except you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you, you remind them, you remind them that whatever it is that they bring with them, whatever it is that they've experienced, even this week, you have been present, advancing your purposes in their lives. And so we pray for us, for our church, God, that you would be doing this work in us, opening up our eyes to see your presence as the anointed Messiah of God, as the one who steps into human history with all of our dysfunction and says, yeah, you too, you too, follow me. I love you. I love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for being here. Next week, part two, the odd circumstances of Jesus' birth. So come back for that. If you're new to our church, you want to learn a little bit more about it, just come on forward after the service. Awesome. Michelle, maybe you can come on down and join me. I'd love to answer any questions that you have. Receive the benediction. Lord Jesus, now send us out under your power and your strength. You've given us everything that we need for this life for today and for tomorrow. And so send us out as people who've been redeemed, not just now, but whose entire stories and histories have been reclaimed for your purposes. We thank you. We pray in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. See you next week.